The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn in a Bible to Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 16 verses of this chapter as we're studying Acts. I'll tell you that I'm actually stopping before Peter's sermon is finished. This is a miracle action of God that leads into a sermon, and I'm not reading the entire sermon. Time is shorter to deal with all of it this morning. But listen carefully to God's Word, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health, in the presence of you all. This is God's own word, perfect in all that he has revealed, without error, altogether true. Eighty years ago, in the worst days of what we called the Great Depression that most of us have no memory of, 
In the Great Depression of America, a dollar was worth a great deal less than it is today. There was a song that came along out of the Great Depression era, which was an imaginary plea of a, an unemployed beggar on some city street, didn't have a job, didn't have anything, and was hungry. And the song had this beggar asking, Brother, can you spare a dime? Today, that doesn't sound like much, does it? Believe it or not, a dime in the 1930s could buy you a cup of coffee and a sandwich. Today, we'd probably say, brother, can you spare $3? That's the inflation rate I calculate. Brother, can you spare a dime? Well, we've just met in Acts chapter 3, a man who could have been singing that song. A man who was asking for any kind of donation, small or large, that would help him eke out the bare minimum of living. He couldn't work. He could not walk. He couldn't do anything for himself. And so friends or family members put him in a place where he could sprawl on the ground at the gate of the temple, a particular gate that is named, it's called in other terms, the Nicanor Gate or Beautiful Gate. It had bronze sculptings all around it, and it was quite a wonder. People talked about it and said, look at that beautiful entrance to the temple. So it was a tourist spot, a place where worshipers came. And of course, it was a duty of Jewish worship in those days to give to the poor. A special obligation was put on those going to worship to to donate to the poor if they could. So this man was an opportunist, or at least his family was, and placing him in the right spot. And along came two apostles of Jesus, Peter and John, still participating in the times of prayer in the Jewish temple, by the way, reminding us that Christians didn't immediately break away from everything in Judaism. They were still coming to the temple, still praying with other Jewish brothers who maybe didn't know Jesus yet. And there they were confronting this man. Now let me remind you that we've studied Acts and we've heard in Acts 2, Peter's great sermon on Pentecost by which he sought to develop or interpret what God had done in this gift of the Holy Spirit and the languages that were able to be spoken as men spoke other languages that they didn't know to declare Jesus in that language. And we've seen not only that first dramatic work, we've heard the first dramatic sermon, and now we see the first apostolic miracle performed, a physical miracle of divine healing that happens here in Acts 3. A miracle that is not featured really for its own sake as if it in and of itself was so important, but rather what it signifies about a life made whole, a life brought to real joy and ability to praise God. We believe strongly that this is a lesson about a miracle of new birth that God can bring in the life of any man or woman who would bow before Jesus Christ by faith in his name. There's two divisions I want you to see in the thinking on this text today. And the first I'll label this way, the paralysis of lost hope. The paralysis of lost hope. You remember we've been told that 3,000 people believed and came to Christ in response to Peter's sermon just before this. Now, 
you know, 3,000 people just kind of overwhelms you. If you try to think of what was going on in 3,000 people, you might say, well, I need a particular example to focus in on. I can't conceive of what's happening to 3,000 people. And I think, in a sense, the Holy Spirit understands that and through Luke gives us this one case example, one illustration of a crippled man, 40 years old, whose entire life has basically been spent doing what he has found doing here, begging at the gate of the temple because he can't do anything else. I've heard that I've, I have mentioned at some time or other before that one of our sons was born with his feet actually deformed. They were, he had a brother sitting on them for nine months, so that we think that was part of the reason, but his, his ankles were bent. His, his toes actually were pointed towards each other when he was born. And, and had they stayed in that situation... He couldn't have walked. I've often thought of a man like this in the Bible and thought, why, my son, 200 years earlier or something, before modern medicine, would have not been able to walk. He would have been in the same position as this beggar. Now, my son didn't experience a miracle. He experienced modern medicine, the wonderful science of orthopedics where casts were put and and gradually his ankles were turned outward and and another cast and another cast until his feet were in the right position and he grew up and became a fine athlete. Wonderful what medicine was able to do for him. But here's a man that didn't have anything like that. And so every day and every hour of every day he spent in this terrible position of both monotony and hopeless. No matter what your work is in the world, You know, there's a lot of monotonous work that people do that's pretty boring, not very interesting. I can't imagine anything being more boring than having to sit helplessly on the ground, not even be able to get up and walk around to take a break or something, and simply to call out to people to try to get them to donate to you. What a situation of utter hopelessness. He was ignored by 90% of the people who walked by him, Here and there, somebody dropped a few coins into his hat or his cup or whatever he had there to to receive those donations. But, boy, there sure wasn't much hope in this situation, was there? Well, then think about the miracle that was wrought. Now, not by the words of Jesus, for he's risen, he's ascended to heaven, but by the words of an apostle. Now, this lame man, it seems like the the text takes pains to emphasize he was well-known. He was 40 years old. He'd been in this situation a long time. It seems that that we're being told here, look, there's no way that this was something staged. You know, we have folks who call themselves healers today, and they'll go and have a healing service, and it's well-known that there have been examples when uh, people were planted in the audience. Oh, why don't you come up, sir? And he comes up and Wow, he was healed. Well, he wasn't sick in the first place. It was a plant. It was a, it was a trick. But it seems that the scripture is saying, make no mistake, everybody knew this man. He'd been around all these decades. They'd, they'd seen him there. He certainly wouldn't have been acting this out all this time if it wasn't real. And Luke, the doctor, remember, is the one who describes this, who's God's instrument to write this book of Acts. And commentators on the Greek language say at the end of Verse 7, when, it, when the text says immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, that that's described in medical terminology as if it was a doctor it's with some technical process of, of the bones returning to alignment or to their joint, the socket and the, the joint coming together. 
It's Luke, the Greek scientist, who was God's instrument to write this wonderful book of Scripture. And here he is, the scientist, the doctor, who doesn't say, well, you know, uh, somebody just pulled his foot the right way and something popped and he was all right. No, Luke obviously believes this was an immediate supernatural cure. Now, when some people would talk about a miracle, they would say, well, in a miracle, the laws of nature are being broken or contravened. I hope you would think carefully before you say something like that because it really isn't accurate. What people call the laws of nature are first the laws of God, the creator. It's God, the creator, that that made principles and regularity and patterns operate in what we call nature. And God isn't confined somehow by a rule book of mother nature that says, well, God, you can't do that. Of course not. He wrote the rules in the first place. And God can act independently of what we call scientific principle. Or he can speed it up or or do it any way he chooses if he wants to bring an act of power and wonder to take place. One commentator in writing about this miracle makes it very clear that this wasn't a human, even though the apostle Peter was the one commanding, more or less the one humanly in charge of the scene, The commentator says the power at work in the miracle was Christ's, but the commanding voice was Peter's. That's exactly right. It was the power of God working through Peter here. Now, God can certainly do miracles today, and he does them. But there are no apostles walking about who are authorized in the way these men were to command these things. There was, remember, of course, Jesus commanded miracles. He told someone to walk or hear or see, and they did. And by the way, Jesus didn't say, I, in the name of blank, command this. He didn't have to use anyone else's name because he was God in flesh. And he could command as God did. But when a man would command, notice what Peter has to say. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth do this. He was the intermediary for God's power only. Humanly, he didn't have any special ability. And yet we might ask ourselves, why is it that in the Bible, in the time of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha and even Moses and others, and uh, then in the time of the apostles, there were these clusters of many miracles happening? And it's true, that was the case. Well, why is it that God gave Peter and Paul and and the apostles a special ability to be able to command miracles in the name of Jesus? There's a reason. One of them was to authenticate or give credentials to the apostles as very unique people serving in the kingdom of God once for all. There are no apostles around today. We've said that already here in the book of Acts. Anyone who says today that he is an apostle is a charlatan. At worst, he's mistaken. He might even be someone who can do great damage to your faith. These apostles were ordained of God and called of God to have the special role of both founding the church and being the vessels who would receive Holy Spirit revelation that would bring us the rest of the Bible, the New Testament books. And therefore, they were special people. And they disclaimed, look, we didn't do this ourselves. You notice Peter saying that here. He said, do you think I did this by my own power or piety? Not at all. He makes it very clear that it was God working through him. 
Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, there's an important little mention there that speaks about miracles and says they are signs of an apostle. You know, we've had all this debate in our state about uh, getting a badge or a photo ID or something to be able to come and vote. And the idea, in other words, to do something, you have to be authenticated. Well, that's exactly what miracles did for apostles. It showed that they, by doing these in the name of Christ, were God's authorized agents, his spokesmen on earth, founding the church, different from the rest of us today because they were witnesses themselves of the resurrection of Jesus. So it was to be a credential for them, but then another purpose of miracles for them was, was the wondrous part of it, the part that got attention, that people said, wow. What just happened there? And they all gathered around it, you see. And the scripture calls them both wonders and signs. Now, a sign is something that points beyond itself to a deeper meaning going on, as if they're saying, well, look, this man was healed, and God is interested in healing you. And you may not have his exact malady, but God is interested in healing your life on the inside, your soul. And this wonder that he has committed here is only like a parable or an example of the way in which he could heal you as well. So putting all this together, when we speak about the paralysis of lost hope in this lame beggar, Luke clearly appears to be saying to us that all of mankind's condition is like this. We were born disabled by sin. We are people that are handicapped in so many, many ways by our lies, our pride, our deceptions against one another, our anger, our acts of violence, our neglect of other people, and all the things that make us sinners. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. And it's not just with our feet or our ankles, it's our minds, it's our whole consciousness, our entire way of living and looking at the world. We're out of joint in every way that we could possibly be. And here's the world full of people rushing by us, and maybe we're in some manner or other kind of holding up a tin cup saying, world, would you help me? Can you spare a dime? And maybe once in a while the world drops a dime into our cup, but it certainly doesn't cure what's wrong with our souls. We find millions of people whose eyes are cast downward at the ground like this beggar. You know, I can't imagine this beggar looking up very often. You know, I mean, if you're going to look up, you've got to have some kind of sense of realism and willingness to face people. I think he was looking down like a famous debater was last week, but we'll stay off of that subject. (laughs) He was looking down. He was looking at the ground. He didn't have any hope. He didn't think anything was going to happen. And aren't we schooled by life to expect rather little from our human circumstances? To expect little that will change us fundamentally? Well, thank goodness that's not all we have to say about this passage. Let's go in the second place to the breakthrough that happens with the miracle in Acts 3. The whole scene changes when Peter said these banner words, silver or gold I don't have, and he probably didn't have. You know, the apostles themselves lived hand to mouth. They didn't have a lot of money. Peter truthfully says, what I do have, I give to you. He didn't offer coins in a cup. He offered a formula that changed lives. 
something that could happen by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, in the ancient world, a person's name was usually significant to tell something about his character, his worthiness, his capabilities. Oftentimes, in the Roman world, they took on a new name when they came into adulthood that would supposedly tell what kind of a person they were. And so, if you knew a person's name, you knew about him. You knew what he was made of, what he was like. Now, I would have you notice that there are several names, and of course, there are many, many more throughout the Bible, but just here in this short passage that I read, there are several names for Jesus. In verse 6, he's called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In verse 14, he's called something quite a bit higher, the Holy and Righteous One. In verse 15, he's called something utterly amazing, the Author of Life. Now, do you see... By combining these things, what Peter was saying in talking about Jesus, he's saying, a man who was known to be among you, you even know where he grew up in that obscure little village, Nazareth, you know, Nazareth might be like Ephrata or Bowmansville or something, and folks said, oh yeah, I know where that is. And, oh yeah, Jesus came from there. But he calls him not just the man who lived nearby, he calls him the holy, righteous one. And then he calls him the author of life. Peter's saying, look, do you understand this man who died on the cross, whose resurrection we witnessed, whose exaltation to heaven we witnessed, is all of these things. And if you would have faith in the man who really lived in the midst of our community, who really died on our behalf, who was holy and righteous, who is the author of life, the creator, if you would put trust in all of that, you would be trusting in the greatness and the wonder of who he is and what he alone can do for you. I'll put it real down to earth for you. What if I was to sit down with you in pastoral counseling and and you started to tell me a long tale of financial woes and, you know, bills are overwhelming to you and your children are heading for college and you haven't got anything saved for retirement and, boy, I was just moved by your story. Many people could tell a story like that. And I said, all right, look, I'm your pastor. I'd like to help. Here's what I'll do for you. I pull out my checkbook. What's your name? I'll write your name on the first line of a check. Now, look, I want your situation to go away. So I'm going to write 1-0-0-0-0-0-0, whatever, how many zeros do I need for a million? I'm going to write a million dollars on the check and sign my name and tear out the check and say, here it is. This will solve your problem. Now, I wonder what you would say. You'd probably say, well, pastor, first of all, I couldn't accept a gift like that. But even if you said that, inside your head you'd be saying, this preacher doesn't have a million dollars. This check is bogus. I can't trust something like this. In other words, you'd be saying to me, I can't trust in the name of Michael Rogers for a million dollars. But what if you knew Bill Gates and you went to see Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world? He has billions upon billions upon billions. I don't know. What is it now? Maybe $100 billion? I have no idea what he has. It's astronomical. And Bill Gates heard your story and same as me, was sympathetic. And he said, oh, look, you're such a nice person. I'd like to help you. I'll get out my checkbook and I'll write your name and I'll write a million dollars and I'll sign my name, Bill Gates. 
here's the check. You would break every speed limit law to get to your bank and deposit that check. Why? Because you trust in the name of Bill Gates when it comes to financial resources in a way you do not trust in my name. Now, that's not a silly example. It's exactly what is being preached here by Peter. He's saying, do you understand that a man who walked among us, who looked just like us, who was known to us, his name was Jesus, which actually was a very common name. It was like Bill or David in that day, a common name. This man from Nazareth was actually the holy and righteous one of God. He was the creator. He was present at the creation of God as the author of human life. Will you trust in this one to have all the resources that your life needs to be made entirely new? Do you trust the check that Jesus would write out for you? Because you can trust him to do anything that God claims he will do. Now quickly, time is short here, but I want you to see what sort of faith, because I think this is a fascinating aspect of this, this particular incident. The man was told, by faith in the name of Jesus, something wonderful is going to happen. All right, what, what did the man do? Peter said, look at us. He, was look, he wasn't obviously looking around. Look at us. The gospel has to get somebody's attention first, right? You've got to be looking expectantly in the right direction. But then look what happened. There is no word recorded that this beggar said, oh, yes, thank you very much. I believe in Jesus. No, it's not there. Acts 3, 7 says, Peter took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately he was made strong. You see, Peter commanded the miracle in the name of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit worked the miracle. Isn't it interesting that it does not say here that the man professed to believe? Now, granted, there are many other instances in the New Testament where people did first profess to believe, but not this time. In fact, I would say this man was about as much a voluntary participant in this miracle as you would be if you were walking along the right side of the road with your back to traffic and a car hit you that you never even saw. That's just about what I see here. Peter didn't say, would you like me to stand you up? And No, he took a hold of him and said, stand up. And the man's feet were made whole in that act of Peter raising him up. Now, what's, what's the point of that? Well, Pastor Light, actually, tonight is going to talk about Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.8 says that even your faith is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. And here's a radical example of this. The only way this man ever showed faith at all was after the fact. When he jumped around and praised God afterwards, sure, that was faith. But beforehand, we hear nothing. Augustine, the great man of God from the 400s A.D., said in a prayer one time, Lord, command of us whatever you will, but enable for us whatever you command. That's very profound when you think about it. He said, Lord, tell me to do anything. Tell me anything. But you're going to have to give me the ability to do it. And that's what you have here, the gift of faith that is not of our own doing. It's a wonderful gift of God. Before we come to God's table this morning, I just ask, can you see yourself at all in this man? Maybe in your past, or maybe even right now, 
Do you know what it's like to be spiritually locked up, paralyzed, disabled, not to see a way of escape? And maybe you've been singing your song of self-pity for the world to hear, and maybe a few people who like you or love you have tried to drop some coins in your little cup, but they haven't cured your spiritual paralysis, your hopelessness. I want to tell you that your heavenly Father is not aiming to spare you a dime or drop a quarter in your cup. His desire for you is to do something bigger, more grandiose, more fundamental, more radical, as he would heal you and remake you and give you all new life in the name of Jesus. I didn't read all the way into the sermon of Peter here, but in verses 19 and 20 you might glance and see that Peter talked about the result that would come when he said, repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. This is the new life of the Christian. Sins blotted out, refreshing, new hope. And look at what happened as a result. It's very evident in this man, isn't it? The text emphasizes more than once what he did. Leaping, not just standing, not tottering, leaping, running, praising God. Faith somehow blooms all of a sudden once he sees that God has acted powerfully on his behalf. I tell you today that all things that Jesus Christ is in his many names in Scripture is offered to you. There's no other name under the starry heavens in which there is life, forgiveness, new hope, and eternal life. And all that comes by trusting in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Bow with me, please. And as I pray, I'm going to ask, maybe there's somebody that just needs to pray along with me because I'm going to pray as maybe you ought to. And so after I pray, perhaps you can say to the Lord in your own spirit, Lord, that's my prayer. Lord God, we're in great need. We're like this lame beggar. We're not able to change our situation. And other people can't seem to help us. But Lord God, through Jesus Christ, you offer a transformation, a change greater than anything I could imagine. So today I call on the great name of Jesus. And by the power that your son displayed in his cross to conquer death and to rise again, I ask you, Lord God, forgive me, heal me, make me his completely new creation. I pray in the name of the author of life, Jesus. Amen.